0: hello and welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine statewide campus system med ed transformation podcast I'm Deb Young director of faculty development and I am here today with dr. Miko Rose also from MSUcom. <laughs> Nico, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, thanks so much for having me. Nico, before we get started, why don't you um, tell everybody
1: a little bit about yourself and your, and your background? Sure, absolutely. So I am, um, did most of my medical training here at Michigan State University. I did my residency and um, my research project through my residency in Michigan State University. I ended up through a series of, we could call them fortunate serendipities or unfortunate serendipities and challenging occurrences. Um, I became inspired to start to study the art of resilience and human beings in their abilities to preserve strength, goodwill, kindness and compassion in the face of great, great challenges. This became an interesting area of study that I had informally begun in my pre-medical school years and was unaware that I'd be able to tie in my personal interest of life coaching and well-being into medical residency until I came to Michigan State to, to, to study psychiatry. I've been very fortunate to stay here as faculty. I took the research project that I started during my residency years back in 2010, studying outcome measures and results of interventions demonstrated to have the greatest efficacy on improving one's well-being for the general population, and then testing that through research study to see what impact, if any, that would have on medical trainees and clinicians alike. Since then, I've been very, very fortunate that this program has expanded and Michigan State University, both the College of Osteopathic Medicine as well as the College of Human Medicine, that both the medical colleges have become very, very supportive of the programming. So I have webinars. I have a few podcasts as well. I have done Facebook Live meditations focusing on mindfulness meditations for peak performance and well being. And I also teach a formal elective class on happiness and emotional resilience for healthcare providers based on the research that I started here at MSU. Oh, such a wealth
0: of knowledge we have here today. And in the light of what we've been through this last year with COVID and the mindfulness and the well being and and self-care. This today is just gonna ring true to all of that. Um, yes. and I believe some of uh, the projects that you're referring to happens to be the joy in medicine.
1: Yes, yes. So the name of my project is Joy Initiative. The MSU Innovation and Hub Department very graciously helped me and were quite generous with their time and some funding to help me in setting up this webpage, joyinitiative.com. And on it I started reaching out to clinicians and providers alike, even outside of the MSU community. And yes, the program is called the JOY Initiative, Looking at aspects of studying and promoting joy within our profession in medicine, starting at a time that well, maybe not now. I, you know, fortunately, but back in 2010 when we started when I started this, this project, it really was an initiative of looking at wellness and well being as a, a a cutting edge new concept of thought to incorporate into clinician practice and for medical trainees. I've been really fortunate that our field has so dramatically changed that it's now become a part of our industry. Um, but yes, back when, when I coined the, the name of this project, it was an initiative, and um, fortunately since then things have changed, but it still remains the JOY initiative. Very good.
0: And I don't know if you remember, the last time that you and I did a program together, it was March 13th, it was Friday the 13th of 2020, When the state of Michigan shut down and it was our wellness event. Yeah. (laughs) And we transitioned that live program into a virtual program. And then we talked about some of the data around resilience and burnout. And I know this last year, burnout is even so much more. So, like, even if we avoid talking about this last year, Despite all of the research and data about resilience,
1: we're still experiencing burnout. What is that about? Well, you know, I think it's multifold. And, and, and what's really interesting is that that example of how you were able to pivot and use strengths of what you have created at SCS and what we have at MSU has been kind of a phenomenal example of the differences between what allows one, whether individually or within groups themselves and institutions to thrive under stress and become cutting edge edge innovations and technology versus really crumbling or having great challenge in the face of stress. You know, I think some of the pieces, obviously we can look at the data and some of the, the recent research looking at COVID and its impact on mental health in the general population. And the stats are quite clear. There's a preponderance of increase in depression, anxiety, despair, levels of burnout across the board. For clinicians, this seems to be related to pieces like uh, increased hours, decreased pay, and just the overall healthcare challenges of being a provider with, with, with just all of the, the challenges and pressures we've had through COVID. So it, I often refer to this, and I, we had talked about this ironically before COVID had even hit, this idea of a superhero complex that we as clinicians often in regards to self-care haven't set up a structure or, or created these aspects of our own culture within our own subgroups to have the conversation about what it's like to be a clinician, particularly during these times, and not be feeling well ourselves. Um, there's so much mental health stigma overall in our general population, and we expand that out to certain professions, especially in medicine right now. It is It remains increasingly difficult for physicians and clinicians and trainees to disclose that they're having distress, and particularly now, Being a healthcare provider, where we have typically been referred to as these superheroes of the superhero complex, these really are the times of fighting, um, really the good fight against COVID and all the aspects that it requires, where we are held to task to, to step up and just really use all of our resources that we have to help others. And the underside of that is it can be quite draining. What about the concept
0: of it being more of a system issue, especially when we know that there are physicians and clinicians and other healthcare providers that are doing everything that they can do
1: for their own wellness and self-care, but things still aren't changing. Yeah, absolutely Deb. You know, I would say that I agree and I disagree because typically when I join in with my colleagues in these conversations, we come to a point where it's not really an either or, right? Can an individual struggle against the machine of EHR challenges and billing and challenges just of COVID alone and institutions not responding to us as providers in in the rates and methods that work best for us? And and in many ways, even knowing some of the um, providers who have helped try to orchestrate some of the interventions, they can help and then in some ways when those interventions fail or fall short, then clinicians face even greater levels of burnout. At the same time, there's this very famous quote by Gandhi about an individual and what we can do. In fact, Gandhi, Confucius, all of the major philosophers throughout times have talked about the power of one individual to create change, to inspire others. And so yet, while I fully do acknowledge that institutions absolutely play a role in all of our well-being and struggles, at the end of the day, we have choices and our own well-being is ultimately up to us, and we have choices. We have choices to take action, to create and instigate change within large institutions, which I saw a gap back in 2010, and started and created initiatives to address that change. It doesn't mean that right now during COVID, every clinician will be able to do something similar with every gap in the healthcare system within COVID, but throughout traditions and time, regardless of who you look at in terms of teachers, philosophers, even great historians, the theme remains true that despite challenges of institutions that we do all face, particularly as providers during COVID, at the end of the day, the choice of happiness, well being, calm amidst the chaos, if you will, lies within us and our responses to environments. Ultimately, it's not an either or. Is it us as clinicians making poor choices and not choosing our own self care? even though in many cases people feel trapped that they can't, or is it the institutions coming down on us not providing enough resources and support? Individuals create institutions, right? So we as clinicians become administrators. We inform administrators. Administrators, there's so much crossover and overlap. It's like a big Venn diagram where there's often not very much independent. And so it's not just, is it an institution or is it an individual? I see it more as a yes and. Yes, it is us independently, we get to make our own choices. If situations are absolutely untenable and we can't do things that we need to do to take care of ourselves, clinicians leave. And we see that now at very high numbers. And there are things that we can do as I've personally experienced when we feel inspired to make change within institutions to create institutionalized change. So I think ultimately it's both. Interesting that you say that. So in, in some aspects,
0: um, you know, when, when we choose our profession, we we choose some of the barriers to wellness. We choose the long hours. We know that there's going to be long hours when we go into to healthcare, maybe even inconsistent work environments, the changing of your, your team that you're working with intense emotional experiences. How does that play into effect to our wellness? If we're choosing a profession that we know has a significant burnout or um, lack
1: of self care, how does that play into our mindset? You know, the, um, one of the examples that was um, provided, I believe it was Dr. Fleck down at CHM, he talks about this, this very concept in terms of ethics and choosing one's profession and then within a profession where we choose to pursue aspects and choices within our own careers as individuals. And what he talks about is this concept of signing up to be a firefighter, right? If you choose to be a firefighter, you know that at some point you're gonna be held to be going into burning buildings, putting out fires, all of some of the predictable and informed choices you'll be making, right? Then when you choose, am I gonna go into this burning building? We have a choice within that framework. Some firefighters will choose to be the absolute hero and run into a building and save 15 children and three cats and whoever with a 90% chance that that building's going to fall based on their training. And others will say, hey, you know what? I have 15 kids of my own in my own house. I can't make that choice. And yet they still chose the profession of being a fighter, fully informed that there were some levels of risk regardless of what path they chose within that field. Similarly, in medicine, my interactions with medical trainees, future students, and several pre-medical student populations and groups is that they're becoming increasingly informed of similar mental health risks to themselves. And how far into the fire we as individuals choose to go, that's a personal choice, right? And the key piece here is continually checking in. It comes full circle to conversations we've had even last year around self-care and using our own feelings inside, inside our bodies, inside our own aspects of personal reflection of where we are going and how we're feeling even in the moment, which can change. And then continually checking in, checking in inside in almost an identical way that we would check in on a a patient who has high blood pressure and check and just monitor to see how they're doing. We can do the same to ourselves and make choices every day about how much we will lean in to situations that may or may not cause distress and how much we'll need to pull back our level of work, our level of involvement, and how much we're able to do in the day-to-day. So really, we need to approach our mental health more and more like we treat our own patients for their own physical health and well-being and make choices and readjustments with our own decisions within our careers as much as we can based on how we are feeling when we do our own self-reflection.
0: If we approach our own self-care that way, wouldn't that require some level of insightfulness um, in ourselves, in in our reflections?
1: So this is an interesting question because I've worked with individuals, clinicians, and just folks in the general population alike. Insight can be helpful. One piece that I've been teaching most recently in the last two and a half years that I've been teaching the happiness elective for medical students is that you can know what you need to do and not be able to do it, right? And you can do the right thing just because it feels right when you check in with your own body. through some mindfulness techniques of embodiment that I teach and and have also done some some work with some, some instructors on meditation and peak flow so that it turns out that the two can be related But sometimes they actually work independently. So, insight and knowledge in one's brain and mental body, if you will, can be, in fact, a different entity than the physical embodiment and actions that we take. So, one example would be if you're in peak flow, maybe you're a surfer and you're going wave to wave and you're just your body, you're just fully present and focused. You don't even feel like you're thinking. You're so fully focused in the moment, thought has no form and doesn't matter you're so fully present in your body that lack of insight or complete presence is irrelevant. right? This is the state of peak flow that we talk about. Alternatively, I often work with folks, they are so in the mental body and their thoughts, they know exactly what they need to do. And yet there are different aspects holding them back that they're either unaware of or unable to conquer through their own mental barriers, if you will, that just stopping the thoughts and just getting present to get them into exercises of peak flow can actually help them overcome even their incredible insight at times when they do have that. So I'd say, interestingly, they end up being Two separate entities that can work together, but don't always have to.
0: Interesting. So let's then talk a little bit more about reflection. When we reflect on our own wellness and well being um, and self care, what should be the next step beyond that? I reflect how I'm doing. What should I do next?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question, Deb. Right. So, one of the pieces, that I often recommend is to just, especially as clinicians, and and I'm just assuming most of the listeners and and even those who aren't formally in medical care, most people listening to these these programs in this podcast would be drawn in some role of caregiver alike. And this piece of reflection, right? Just taking a moment to stop. I saw even just last night when I, I taught, meditation as an introduction to, Every class that I introduce, in the very first 10 minutes, we're always sure to do at least a few minutes of mindfulness. And what one student commented on, and they will often say this every year, Dr. Rose, for the first few minutes, every time we do this exercise, no matter what it is, whether it's mindful breathing, just focusing on an area of my body and breathing into that, or even mindful eating or mindful walking, I just cry. I just have tears that come and I don't know where they come from. Just this piece of coming to the present moment naturally creates an inherent self-reflection where whatever emotions, oftentimes as clinicians pushing ahead and pushing forward and so much striving in our culture and field, we're not even aware of. But just taking a moment to come physically present to the body, which can take one minute to less than a few minutes, often just inherently brings the self-reflection present in a palpable way.
0: I think that goes back to what you you started with, where we feel like we're superheroes and we have to know the answer and we have to be the strongest and we don't have an opportunity to show our own vulnerability. Absolutely. Wow, that that just like kind of speaks wonders. So with that in mind, knowing that, there's this um, kind of pressure, you know, whether it's on ourselves and also from society that we have to be this strong being. Um, we, we, we definitely need to start doing something. We need to start building things into the curriculum. And I love that you said that before any class that you teach, you do a few minutes. So let's now talk about faculty. What can and should faculty be doing? Because not all faculty are going to have the same... Um, abilities to do this mindfulness and meditation training that you do, but what can faculty do um, to start building this resilience, this mindfulness training into the curriculum so it becomes more natural for our students and then our
1: residents and our future our future faculty? Yes, so depending on how deep of a dive one can do or you'd like to be able to start to do, Any form of self-reflection, just coming present to yourself can be incredibly helpful. What medical students and faculty alike have been blown away by when they finally practice meditation or join us for any of these sessions, which you don't have to do in a formal class. You don't need an expensive app or visualization or 20 minutes of listening to you know, rock and, and water just falling down a hill and just lovely, beautiful sounds and a you know, whale bellowing in the background. I mean, those are lovely, but you know, we obviously don't have time to do that while we're um, so busily seeing patients in our schedules and for medical trainees in their training. But what we can do is just take a few minutes every day, and those minutes or even moments don't have to be that long. They don't have to be that extensive, and you don't have to be that skilled. I had this brief momentary thought of, oh, you know, I could read a meditation, but then someone would have to refer to recording. You know, some very, very simple techniques of just counting to 10 and connecting with the body right? So those of you listening and, you know, even dab and and you can keep listening on the recording here live, you know, just put your, put, put one hand on your belly and one hand on your heart and just close your eyes and just put your focus and attention on your belly. Feel one hand on your heart with that attention also on your belly and just breathe. Breathe into the hand that's on your belly and feel your hand move in as you exhale. And out as you breathe in. Breathing in, the belly comes out, and breathing out, belly comes in. And just really focus on your belly and that area and just breathing deep into your belly. And oftentimes, just closing our eyes to tune out any external stimuli and just focusing on our breath and just taking a few moments. In fact, for listeners live or recorded, I invite you to do that right now. If you're driving, obviously don't close your eyes, (laughs) Um, but just put one hand on on your chest for centering and just one hand on your belly. If you're driving, just put one hand on your belly for a moment or focus on it while keeping another hand in the steering wheel and just feel your, your belly and focus your breath in that area. What belly breathing is doing is it's opening up our parasympathetic breathing. It's the rest and digest. It's working on releasing neurotransmitters and creating a biochemistry within ourselves and in our bodies that promotes relaxation and helps alleviate stress. Just breathing into your belly. And if you have a few extravagant moments, count to 10. And don't even worry about doing it right. Just breathe into the belly and out. I count as one. Just take 10 gentle, easy, and slow belly breaths and practice belly breathing. Several different traditions of meditation, mindfulness, life coaching, use very similar techniques, but this is one that's very simple you can do on your own without even needing a recording or a printed script. And if you only have a moment, right, just putting one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly to just feel and get into your present moment alone, in just a second, just a moment, will help alleviate stress, help you start to center ground, and help you start to step into that state that I refer to as peak flow. So we could to, to, start there. <laughs>
0: Two two things on that. I'm after this call. I'm going to write on a sticky note, belly breathing, and I'm going to put it on my computer just so that way. I know, like a reminder.
1: Yeah, I mean, Deb, we have an N of one. What do you think as a test subject during this live? I don't know if Keith is going to. I mean, what did you did you feel a difference just doing that for a few moments?
0: Well, I'll 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 tell you. Coming into this call, you know, I I have my to do list in my head. I you know the things that you know need to get done today. Both at home even though yes. i'm at home as, as well as uh professionally and yes you know this podcast is one of them i'm like okay we're gonna go do the podcast and i i felt I, I felt overwhelmed earlier i was you know going through my yeah internet, but you know just checking things off and yes that that activity and i do it every time you do it i i participate and I'm like God. It works every time. How come I'm yes. not doing it am <laughs> <Yes. laughs> on a more regular basis? So yes, there might be an n of one, but I've done this like ten times with you. So yes, and and, and, the- and, and you know what? We actually have a comment. Um, Keith, Keith said that was awesome. Thank you. so oh, awesome! <laughs> I'm so, so glad you the conversation, <laughs> Holly. That's amazing. Um, and and number two, do you see faculty actually taking the time to do that?
1: Um, I would love
0: love faculty to I would love them to but do you yes you know
1: I I I do and just like I mean so many people are talking about weight loss and and comeback challenges and doing so many things right now with COVID and was it the COVID-15 or depending on what you're listening to is in terms of weight gain and everything with COVID um you know, people are talking about losing weight and and that's the classic example, right? Where it turns out the easiest thing for most is not necessarily initial onset of the weight gain. I mean, that in itself can be its own inherent series of natural challenges and different aspects of support and developing a routine between exercise and eating and all the different aspects of weight loss. This is not a podcast on weight loss, but using this as an example, right? It turns out that in terms of looking at any permanent change in one's life, Using weight loss is a very well research demonstrated example. The areas that people struggle the most is not the initial weight gain. There's obviously some inherent struggle. That's why it requires teens and it's a 1000000000 multi-billion dollar industry. However, the area where people end up struggling the most is in maintenance, right? So this piece on, could you do the belly breathing now? Absolutely. The piece on maintenance, right? When the post-it sits out in the sun and it starts to, you know, I don't know if it's yellow or bright pink or whatever, it starts to fade. Will it just look like a piece of clutter eventually or will it become something that as the color on that post-it starts to fade, it's so naturally become an inherent part of your beingness and routines that you can't imagine not doing it.
0: Well, I'm gonna check back in with you in like three months and let you know. know. (laughs) It is like totally part of my routine. And to do all the time. Another comment came in that said, whoa, settled my heart rate and made me smile, especially because they could hear the little birds in the background. And honestly, I could hear the birds, too. And I was like, wait, are birds outside my window right now? I know. And it
1: could be mine. I'm in this tiny little condo, but it's a very sweet space. And just like this one little tree outside it seems to collect a lot of birds, especially when I do these kinds of talks and conversations. I, I loved it. It was,
0: it, was, it, was, it was perfect. All
1: <laughs> yeah, right. So, so, so
0: that's so that's something that faculty can just talk the students through, like, hey, we're going to we're just going to take a minute. Do some yes. breathing before we jump into into the content of whatever we're going to do. Yes, and I probably have... something that they could also do in the clinical space.
1: Maybe? Yes, you, yes. Or... So a couple of different things. One thing that I do with um, with my classes is I will actually with the students because most people are just watching on Zoom live or on a recording. I'll actually have students and uh, clinicians pull out their phones. And i will say, you know what? This is half of the wellness programs that you'll see have the be here now reminder, right? Or belly breath, be here now, belly breath. And this element of belly breathing really brings you to the being in the here and now. And so if you're able to just open up your phone, you can schedule out as a recurring event three times a day, right? Just be here now. And that alarm can go off, I, I actually, have my own that folks who share my calendar and can do my scheduling will see three times a day at 8.30 a.m., 12.30 in the afternoon and 8 p.m. at night a reminder, an alarm comes off that I have to turn off to, to as a reminder that three times a day I have a reminder to be here now. And even just in that moment, if I do it for a few seconds as I'm turning off the reminder, it allows me to take a moment to just focus and center. So here in about three minutes, you're going to be reminded that you need to. <laughs> yes, I put mine on silence, but it will actually just start the visual. Yes, and and similarly, you know, one of the things that people can do, for example, I know people talk about Zoom fatigue and meetings and different aspects like that. I actually particularly on Zoom with my students every session we start with a mindfulness exercise and then we do brief breakout rooms where students talk about their happy crap the things that they are happy about and grateful for for the day and just having those few moments to connect and get present has been a fantastic a fantastic conversation and so I work with also the athletic teams and some of the teams, one of the team coaches said that every time she has a practice or a meeting, she has people go around and talk about the thing that they're grateful for, or the thing that they're happy about for that day. And they will often start even team practices, just taking a few moments to have centered breath and breathing.
0: It has to be, I mean, helpful in, in every aspect of life. Um, I know in, in mine, it has been, um, and obviously you like, it. I, I can tell just talking to you that, you, that you're smiling. So I mean, I mean for, for those of you who do not know Nico, um there's never been a time that I've talked to her or seen her where she is not smiling. She has truly encompassed the joy in medicine as well as overall happiness.
1: Yeah. And I would say, yes, you know, in these techniques, they're very simple to tie in just for a few minutes before starting a meeting, whether or not the group leaders do it, you can do it yourself. And we're very good at tuning them out just for a few moments to breathe. And, you know, I would say that it's not that I'm always happy all the time in this Pollyanna state. It's more just that I've practiced these exercises and techniques um, so that I, one, of, one of my friends and a Hay House author, Jennifer Grace, talks about drop the rope, you know, that, that I just don't have to hold onto it as tightly anymore so that when I experience a It's more like a wave, and it's just not as intense and as fierce as things used to be before I had a regular meditation practice. So it's not that I don't have um, sad feelings or get frustrated or have really challenging times because obviously you don't create a resilience and happiness class because life was just uh, brilliantly easy without any challenges. I studied the art of happiness in spite of challenges because I was having a lot of challenges and I wanted to see a way to do things differently. but the piece is really how do I pivot and how do I take the challenges that I've had to turn it into something that feels uplifting and positive so that I'm not just barely getting by and white knuckling the challenges of my life, but I'm creating a sense of flow versus resistance and just staying in that state of joy, not as a static state, but as a state of equilibrium, constantly adjusting and readjusting and recurring so that the happiness that you you tend to see <laughs> is it's a continual balance and rebalance. And that ultimately that's the idea behind balance and joy and happiness and all of the initiatives that MSU has been so wonderful to, to help me create.
0: Let, let's talk about pivoting uh, real quick. Yeah. So I, I heard it in, in a, another discussion and I don't remember who all was there, but it was at the, at the college and it was about, you know, we all pivot sometimes it takes us longer to pivot than others but the shorter amount of time it takes you to pivot the more resilient you are and that really comes with practice
1: What's, what's yeah your you know i've that? i've also seen that go both ways it it it's sort of one of the things that i've learned in psychiatry especially because even though our training at michigan state was very focused on therapy and helping patients with great assistance and coaching at times in therapy really follow their own pace. You know, there, there is this piece of, if you get too caught into certain aspects, it's harder to get out. It's more of a Newtonian aspect of getting caught into the rubble. My mother, I don't talk about this very much, but my mother was a survivor of the Hiroshima atomic bomb and her mother, my, my grandmother in Japan, was a non-survivor of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. She was actually directly under the bomb where it exploded in Hiroshima, and one thing that she had talked about and talked with my mother about extensively, and this has been true throughout generations, especially at times of war, is don't get caught under the rubble. And that was a motto and a phrase that I've seen not only in my family upbringing but to be um, tried and tested throughout. The cultures, particularly my trauma patients, and not only the patients, but the families who come with them who do not have the post-traumatic disorder sequela that I often see. The most resilient people that I've seen actually talk about this, this concept that if you don't get caught under the rubble, then there's less to fall on you to just keep moving with a mindful intent. and. I have seen that while fully respecting people's own timelines, and that there are some cases where people just weren't able to pivot and turn, and that I want to deeply honor and acknowledge that everyone has their own individual process. When I look at the most resilient people, they were, I mean, even look at some political leaders who've been through incredible loss and then became incredible leaders throughout the world, they all were able to take these struggles and challenges and turn it into an agent of change, an agent of innovation or inspiration for creativity. We, I've actually seen this in, in my studies of resilience and in the history of resilient humans, whether it's architecture or art or music or scientific innovation or even government and pol- political leaders, the ability to not get caught under the rubble. There seems to be quite a bit of clinical Data to support that can really improve our, our ability to thrive.
0: That, that's, a, that's an in, interesting and, and very enlightening. It wasn't a way that um, I looked at that in the past. But whenever I heard that concept of pivoting, at the beginning, I, I felt like it was more of a, you know, just accept it and move on, you know, and, and kind of get over it. But from what I'm hearing, you saying, you know, we have a different way of, I'll say grieving or accepting or, you know, any, anything like that. And so it may take us longer, but that longer process may not necessarily be a bad thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, overall, yes, I've seen people who've had incredible challenges and struggles that have been able to turn that around. But the reality is most of the people that we're reading about, we don't, we didn't, I didn't know most of these historical figures personally. Um, we don't know what their struggles were inside and how long these different emotions and pieces were going on underneath what we saw on the outside. I mean, we talk about this as a phenomenon even on social media and Facebook, right? Like that just because people are smiling and happy and boisterous, you it know, doesn't mean that their lives are as brilliant and beautiful as they look on social media. It's just what we see. So yes, people absolutely have to have their own process. And and I often liken it. I I love to cook, and you know, it's it's almost like the chemistry of of sauces and just getting the timing just right of everything simmering all together. If you if you turn up the heat too fast, or you you stop cooking too early, and you don't get just quite the right simmering and chemistry in there, things don't quite sit with the right taste and blend, which sometimes takes some time and a specific amount of heat. And so, you know, many of us are are very similar in that whatever needs to be cooked inside of us to be birthed and come forward sometimes does take some time. And if it becomes so um, so we if we become so entrenched in it, that's when it starts to enter this realm of some of the sequelae of symptoms I see in my psychiatric clinics, like the sequela of people having victim um, circumstances as an identity. Um, that's a lot of the arenas where I start to see folks with chronic post-trauma it's this piece of just really not being able to pivot. So I do think we all have our own inherent timelines of the different lessons that we're here to learn and here to share with others. Um, and there can be pieces that have taken too long really become an identity and, and can, we can all feel trapped. And I've seen many, many patients in, in that state as well.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And and also thank you for sharing about your your family history and kind of where where they came from and the lessons learned there.
1: We we talked
0: about
1: it's kind of neat neat when ancestry maps out and the research demonstrates of what you learned from your ancestors. (laughs) (laughs) It's backed up in research, right? My grandmother would say, I told you. (laughs)
0: Exactly. My my children uh, said the other day, they're like, "Why are why are parents always right?" I'm like, I'm marking that on the calendar because <laughs> <laughs> get
1: the date, get the time. Get <laughs> oh my god! Um.
0: So so we we talked about what what I really want people to get from this podcast are what can they do now to bring back their joy in medicine to build that mindfulness and resilient practice and we talked about one way um which is the the belly breathing key is you have to do it regularly not just once every now and again when you talk to Miko Rose on a podcast um, <laughs> <laughs> so I will be doing it regularly for for everybody to know hold me accountable yes um, but but what, what are what are your like next key things that people can do individually? Because again, we can't rely on the system to make everything right for us. We're our own, it's our responsibility. Well, what are, what are
1: your, your takeaways there? Um, this is an interesting time because in some ways many of us have a lot less time but even for those of us that don't we have these protected shelters of still being predominantly in some variances of quarantine. And so the one piece particularly around this aspect of pivot is I would invite you all to just take a moment and think, is there something you've wanted to do that you just haven't had a chance or or just done? Like, oh yeah, I really want to. With the vaccine and all these things coming out right now, it's quite clear that whether in the next few months or several months, or at least within the next year to 18 months, Things will steadily start to open up with or without some some backs and downturns. And this is really an opportunity to take the advantage of the gift of time. So I invite everyone to think of the one thing that inspires them. The one piece I've seen and the one common theme is a I've seen across the board, regardless of whether it's patients I'm seeing in one of my psychiatry clinics, I have a few, whether it's talking with colleagues, students in my classes alike, is that people overall, folks are really feeling with this, what we're now calling pandemic fatigue, a lack of inspiration. Just whatever used to make you feel inspired just doesn't seem doable, isn't attainable. And whatever that is, I invite you to just kind of think about what's the one thing you have been meaning to do during the pandemic and haven't or have always wanted to do. And and there must be some piece and element, even if you can't do it in its full form, that you might be able to do right now. And just in terms of like simple goals, you know, we talk about smart goals that make them measurable, make them short, really start with something small. So I can use an example. For myself, I, I've really missed creativity in so many forms, Um, dancing, painting, writing, just creating things in a creative force. Um, And so that's been an inspiration for me is to try to figure out what is something really simple and small that I can do that I used to love that would just help me feel inspired in just one way. And so first pick a quality or an experience that you would like to have that you haven't had in a while that you know when you start to do that one thing or something even related to it that you can do so for me i just picked painting because it seemed very easy and then second identify what your most common barriers are right so deb you and i both talk about overwhelm. So for me, even just painting alone, I get a little coloring book with those beautiful mandalas and then I find these really beautiful watercolor pencils and then I oh, you know, now I have to have the time and I'm and and I can find that I can get overwhelmed even just trying to pick the right colors for an adult mandala coloring book, right? So here I am with a coloring book and I'm thinking, "Oh, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do some wellness and have a few minutes for myself." And then I start getting stressed out of like picking the wrong colors and that the colors will clash and that I'm doing it wrong somehow. So for me, I identify the one piece that I want to call in more that will really help me feel inspired is just any act of creativity. And the one piece that can often hold me back when I'm feeling inspired and can be really one of my greatest downturns, right? It's knowing your pivot points, know what's the most strong and what's the most weak is that if I have too, too many choices, I just feel overwhelmed and I tend to just put it to the side. It becomes yet another thing to do on my list alongside yours of things that I have to do so for example because i like the act of painting and i like the creativity and and just the art of color coming to the page i found these adult this is so funny like if we had a video i'd show the pictures but we, I, ha, I found these adult paint with water coloring books <laughs> so that i can paint and i can use a paintbrush and water and color just springs to the page and i get this really wonderful experience of painting and there's some wonderful designs and affirmations if you look up adult paint with, with water books. Um, and yet I don't have to worry about the other aspect of creativity, which is the stress of overwhelm and having to make too many choices, which then I can feel easily overwhelmed. And then from there, I've started to feel more comfortable pulling out paints, pulling out the adult coloring books with, with different mandalas and pictures and affirmations and, and pencils and different things as I get more into a state of ease. But it's picking something very, very simple And doable that just starts the momentum to get going in a forward motion of whatever piece makes you feel inspired for some maybe it's connecting with nature and going for a walk well you don't have to drive up to traverse city and be two three four five hours away and you make sure that you you know the kids are are taken care of and that your your dogs can come in the park you can just you know put on the shoes or the boots and just pick a place and just walk outside and connect in the snow but if it's nature and connection to animals or, or trees, then you just decide, hey, I'm gonna spend five minutes, I'm just gonna throw in the boots and shoes, and I'm just gonna take a few moments to just really sit with a tree or just go for a walk down the trail, this is Michigan, there's so many trails, four blocks from my house and just start to look for deer, whether or not I see one, right? So whatever piece is just the one thing that could just take a few minutes and be really doable, I encourage you to just do that to get the momentum going. And from that, It's very, very easy to then continue that state of flow. I love that. Like
0: every, every weekend I color with the kids, um, which for the longest time, I'm like, I'm not coloring. And I'm like, no, why am I not coloring? I just color. However, um, you did the watercolor, um, where it picks the color for you. I did the color by number. Yes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I've done those too right I yeah you get the little paints and they have the numbers and then you I think Amazon and some of the websites have and they even give you the paintbrush right you don't have to stress about having the right brush
0: right yes yeah. yes so, so I've, I've, okay. I'm with you on that yeah um Nico, thank you thank you so much for for sharing this time with me and, yes, and, you. and talking about joy and I mean I'm I'm smiling now. I I hope our, our listeners are, are smiling and, and are. belly breathe. Everybody needs to belly breathe.
1: Yes. Yay. We have a little comment on the QA just a smiley face. Smiley face. That's awesome. Yeah. Yay. Well thank you so much for having me. You always have such a great group. It is pretty amazing to think that the last time we talked it was Friday the 13th and things have changed and yet we really have this opportunity to, to dig deeper and turn it into something pretty amazing. We had no yeah. idea this exactly. And we were and, and I and I and I hope my path in front of me
0: continues on being able to provide some wellness events uh, for our members and our students and our residents and and just making sure everybody is is taking some time out for themselves for some self-care reflection.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I will just mention, since this is SCS for folks who are faculty and staff at COM or CHM, um, we do, I do have a clinic for folks that are suffering from burnout where I do a consult outpatient service for those of you that might need support. And so that's also an option in addition to obviously all the, all the wonderful programming you've been doing with SCS. now. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, have a great day, everybody. Thanks, be well.